BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. We are going to get started here. It's a fun special edition of Breaking Points live here from New York City. Well, a special thank you to WTF Media and Alex, who some of you might know from Andrew Schultz's podcast, Alex. for hooking this up. Mm-hmm. We don't usually do this, as you can tell, uh, but this is going to be a lot of fun. So we're going to start, I think, with the news. And then as a preview for the premium subscribers, you guys programmed the show. And Crystal and I are frankly shocked. Yeah. Right? So we, how we, substantive these uh, responses are? We gave yeah, y'all I a was bunch. annoyed by it, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we gave y'all a bunch of options for premium subscribers that you could vote on. How many votes did we end up getting? Uh, about we were tracking. 7,000? Yeah, which is yeah. awesome. Thank you for voting. Yeah. But also, you guys, like, basically gave us homework because yes. we put a bunch of <laughs> super, like, you know, sort of political hot topics, right. like, let's spend a few minutes yeah, bashing yeah. the media right. or, like, talking about Trump. No, you literally went for the most wonky, substantive <laughs> topics yeah. that you possibly could of the entire list. So um, what you all voted for is housing policy, mm-hmm. healthcare, mm-hmm. geopolitical realignment, energy policy, and the future of labor. And uh, we're probably going to throw in some AMA there at the end and start with a, a little news of the day. But um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because we've seen before that the substantive content is very appreciated, although I will say that's not always what people click on on sure. YouTube. That's right. But I do think our premium subscribers are a little bit of a different ilk. So thank you to everybody who voted. Um, we're excited to dig into these topics because these are some of our favorite things to talk about. Yeah, too. it's amazing. It's funny, too, just because being here in New York, it actually just feels even 
even more, uh, it just feels so salient, the fact that we're talking about housing. But let's mm. start with Twitter. Obviously, news broke this morning. I was scrolling my phone at like 6 a.m. and everybody's freaking out. Elon Musk, okay, he's put in an offer, $52 a share, $41 billion. Do- Wait, $54.20, okay, isn't right. it? Yeah, sorry. The 54 dollars Oh, gosh. Yeah. All right. Fact checked. $54 uh, in for, per share, a total of $41 billion. So what he writes in his prospectus, which he had to file with the SEC, is he's very clear about his ultimate aim. He doesn't say anything about uh, business. He doesn't talk about the company being run in a way that he doesn't particularly like. What he says is that this is all about free speech. He says in the opening line of his letter, I believe free speech is vital to a democracy. So it's an interesting takeover that he's doing there. And Marshall, I'm curious for your view here on what exactly this means by Elon, because traditional past shareholder activism has to do with, I think this company is being badly run. This is not about that. This is, I think that this company is not, you know, abiding by content moderation standards that I think are important. So what do you think? And then we'll get everybody else in here. Yeah, just real quick, super pumped to be here. Uh, usually this involves a expensive train ride in a hotel yeah. <laughs> or your couch. Right, right. This is just right. We're Uber. on Marshall's turf now. Yeah, so this right. is this is, this is awesome. That's why I'm not wearing a tie. Kyle's right. as well. We're rebellion. That's right. Um, no, so here's the tape. We were talking about this this morning. We should think of this more as Elon Musk buying a newspaper than Elon Musk buying a big tech company. So mm-hmm. with Jeff Bezos, 2013. Yeah, I, I love it Washington when billionaires Post. buy newspapers. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is a long tradition. Like oftentimes, <laughs> like, rich people will buy a, a, a company, a product, not because they think it's going to throw off all this cash, but like they believe in the idea behind it. That's what Jeff Bezos does with the Post. He's like, well, like, there's obviously some tech things I could do here, but let's get real. I believe in a certain ideology, broadly like center left, like democratic politics. I think this has a long legacy within that side of politics. So I want to make it survive. Yeah. Elon Musk, he's not coming in the way Paul Singer came in last year where it's like, look, Jack Dorsey, love Jack. I think we all like Jack. Shouldn't be CEOs of two companies. <laughs> it's kind of crazy that, let's forget the edit button jokes for a second. It's kind of crazy that this company has not shipped new products in the past three years, that Twitter is the same mm. fundamentally as it's been since 2015. I don't but then the final part, but- and this, this number is crazy to me, Twitter only made $350 million in profit the past two years. So like, mm-hmm. it's kind of like wild how disproportionate, how big this company is relative to how little money it actually makes. Can I, I, I yeah. have an unpopular opinion. I wonder if you guys, what you guys think, but I actually don't want the edit button. I kind of like- Oh, I hate the edit button. I, yeah, yeah I like that. First of all, I like that people show that they're humans and they make mistakes yeah. and like autocorrect and they say stupid shit and it's kind of funny and you just have it there. But also it gets confusing if people like delete it and they're able to parse it. And re- I like that it's just there and that's it and you can't edit it. I, I would like it if you delete a tweet and then it's actually deleted. Because usually what happens is like you'll see it on your feed, press it, and yeah. then it'll say, like, this no tweet has been deleted. It. It's like, yeah. it's not really deleted if you just, and I don't even delete tweets often, but it's one of those things where it's like at least make it so that it actually works if you delete yeah. it. We'll get to that, Kyle. Should you delete tweets? Because I think I think I think deleting tweets well, is bad. I, well, is... You're talking to the guy. I am like He's a purist the weirdly this. most principled man on this. I I have tweets up there. If I ever stop doing what I'm doing now, 
I will never be able to get a job again. <laughs> no, seriously, because I used to go in. I'd be like high on Percocet at the yeah. selling cars, just like firing out tweets. And the next thing you know, somehow my show takes off and everybody's like tweeting Remember back at me everything this? I said yeah. back in 2011. And I'm like, you know what? Whatever. I said it. You guys have a right to see it. I'll leave it up. So I'm weird on that. But I understand why other people might want to have that option of deleting. I will so delete tweets if it's basically wrong in the future. So I'll say, hey, I tweeted this. Yeah. It was wrong. Hmm. And then I take a screenshot of it for posterity. I'm like, just so people know, I deleted this because I don't want to spread fake here's, news on the Here's platform. the other instance where I would delete it. Like this morning, I didn't delete the tweet, but this morning we tweeted out the wrong live stream Right, there link. you go. Right, so, yeah. And that's yeah. like, you know, I mean, I just don't want the wrong information flow, and it's not of consequence. It's just an actual error. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, something I, like that. I agree you know? with like the factual corrections is something that, yeah, of course people. Yeah, but even those sometimes, that. like for example, I we didn't talk about the Andrew Yang, Andrew Johnson tweet oh, yes. on I the did. show. Yeah, Kyle I did, did I but yeah. I prefer that he left it up and then tried to like add to it. <laughs> it was versus, funny. It was funny. Yeah. 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 I, Kyle, didn't say, I, I didn't say he was good. I'm just saying Unity's good. Yeah. Right. But Kyle, <laughs> in that case, yeah, it's, like, it's like actually Unity was really bad yeah. in that case. <laughs> it's making the opposite point of yeah, what you want exactly. to say. Anyway, I don't mean to get into a total digression yeah. here, but Kyle, I want to hear, because we haven't heard on your, uh, on Breaking Points, your view on Elon Musk taking over Twitter. So I'm curious. So I feel like, first of all, the thing that he's saying it's about is the thing that I care the most about in terms of Twitter. Mm -hmm. I do feel like they've gone way too in the direction of being censorious. Um, but I don't think this is an actual solution to it. I don't think we should like wait for a billionaire to come save us. I think the only way to fix this problem is you have to regulate Twitter like it's a public utility and basically expand First Amendment protections and uh, officially legally recognize that this is the new public square in the same way that Facebook is the new public square. And even you could argue maybe Instagram and some others are the new public square. So any large social media outlets should be regulated like a public utility. And then you expand First Amendment protections. The thing about Elon is, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but I've been saying stuff like this about Elon for a very long time. I don't trust his motives. I mean, this is a guy who he paid 3.27% in taxes. That was what's called his true tax rate from a big expose from ProPublica. Um, he strikes me as a lot like all of the other billionaires. And there are other ulterior motives as to why he would do this. He did some, you were talking to me the other day about how you read an article. He did some weird maneuver to make money off of the move in the first place. Yeah. Like, explain that to people. So, I mean, listen, I don't know if it was intentional or it he was, says it was an unintentional. oversight. Yeah, but right. in any case, because he uh, was late in filing a legally required form announcing that he had a significant stake in Twitter, he was able to continue buying Twitter stock at the lower pre-Elon announcement price. So he netted $156 million off of that. And that's not the first time that he has personally financially benefited from his quote unquote free speech on Twitter. The whole long and short of this is, I mean, I feel very similar to what Kyle just stated. Do I think that Elon Musk will have a content moderation policy on Twitter that I personally think is better and important for a democracy and more in the direction of free speech? Yes. Do I think that in general it's a good thing to be hoping that um, our class of billionaires happens to have incentives and personal financial interests that line up with what happens to be good in that moment? No. So I don't see Elon Musk in any different way than I see 
Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or some billionaire hedge funder or anybody else. I fully suspect that they'll be working in their own personal interest. Occasionally, that's going to align with the public good and with what we would like to see happen. But it's no system um, to exist in to just hope for the benevolence of the billionaires. And actually, Marshall, I think your point is really smart of how to think of this as like a billionaire buying a newspaper because that is how he thinks of it. Thinks of it yeah. And that's and he wants his own personal ability to put out there whatever he wants to. And if it has good impacts for everybody else and, you know, brings Trump back on Twitter and all of those things, then that's fine. It's just not a real answer. Go ahead, Kyle. Uh, yeah, let me just say the true test of whether or not Elon actually believes in free speech is going to be are you even going to unban your ideological opponents? Because so you ask me, hey, should Donald Trump be unbanned? And I say yes. Actually, that's a relatively easy question. Now, I despise Donald Trump, mm. but I think he should be allowed back on is Twitter. Is a Tesla union account going to be allowed on Twitter? Not yes. just yeah, that. Yeah, no, right. Another good example is there were there was a mass banning of like large prominent Antifa accounts about a year or two ago. Mm. Is Elon Musk going to be the one who, you know, puts his cape on and saves Antifa? Well, wait, I don't know. Well, quick thing, though, like and this is where I'll just be a bit of devil's advocate here. Like, why should like why should those anti like, hey, I don't know what those Antifa accounts were doing. But mm -hmm. Like there was some bad there was some like so here's the problem here. Twitter is terrible when it comes to actual enforcement, right? So like, why does the Hunter Biden story matter beyond just like the queer screw up? It matters because we all know that would, there would not have been an equivalent that happened to the Biden campaign. That was bad moderation, a badly run company in a way that always obviously benefited um, team Biden. But bad enforcement is different than no enforcement. And I don't think my position, like if Antifa people were promoting violence on the platform, then they should be banned. And guess what? So, if, if it turned out that BLM was doing the same thing and they weren't getting banned, that's a problem. But that's different. I, I, all I'm just saying is like the Antifa BLM violence takes are different to me than a union organized so, band. So let me ask that. So yeah. it depends. So on the one hand, you're correct. Just because we believe in free speech does not mean that you can do direct threats of violence. Not only should that not be allowed on social media, that's also not allowed under the First Amendment. There are very few exceptions to this idea of free speech. You know, you got libel, slander, defamation, direct threats of violence. You could argue something like doxing is in there. Um, in my opinion, based on what I've seen, I think Twitter has gone beyond this notion of direct threats of violence, just that being wrong, because we all agree that's wrong, mm -hmm. to even like general vague calls of violence are now considered a direct threat of violence. And I don't agree with that. I think you should be able to say, you know, I got pitchfork in my hand and I'm going after the billionaires yeah. or some shit. That's vaguely violent, but it's not a direct threat of violence. So this I would just say we got to lean on the side of free speech. But yes, there are some clear lines. 100%. And I think that that's what this is actually about. Nobody actually wants 100%, you know, no moderation. Like child porn, obviously. Should oh, of be, course. Right. And so like these are all things which are written within the law. The issue, obviously, is comes to enforcement. And when it comes to enforcement, I think Crystal's correct. This is probably going to align here. But one thing is we shouldn't present this as a fait accompli. So it's 1126 a.m. here on the East Coast. The Twitter board reportedly has been meeting for the last hour and a half. Jeez. Um, as far as I can tell. <laughs> to be a fly on yeah. the wall. Oh, I can't <laughs> imagine. Total pandemonium. <laughs> so I took, a, I took one for the team. Uh, oh, and just right now, Twitter will host an all-hands meeting with staff this afternoon to discuss oh Elon Musk takeover bid. This is from Sarah Fisher at Axios. She's a great Good reporter. 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 The thing I do want to emphasize to people is that fiduciarily, this is a really tricky one. For So I took the, one for the team. I watched CNBC this morning. Um, <laughs> as this was breaking, which, by the way, was amazing because uh, they were just they were loving this. And so 
Here's the way that they present it. It's going to be very hard for the board not to take this offer. The reason why is that if they reject the offer because of such the premium that he's put on the share price, they will get sued because he has put in his letter that says, I will dump my stock, 9% of the company, if you don't accept that. That's obviously going to lower their price. So they open themselves up to a litany of lawsuits if they don't accept it, which would actually put them in pretty shaky legal reasoning. On because the other hand, what you're saying is that they wouldn't be upholding their, their shareholder responsibility exactly. to act in the best interest which is of the all you're supposed and, to do as a board. And so at the same time, they're in a real conundrum. Now, I did see from a leading c- corporate law expert that Elon may have actually played himself a little bit because he said in there that he will dump his stock if they don't take that. Mm. And so the board on legal grounds could defend the rejection of the offer and say, well, he's trying to coerce us into doing mm. this, which could put, the, regardless, this is a nightmare for the Twitter board and they're getting sued regardless of what happens in the situation. Elon himself also opening himself up to some litigation, but per the immediate reaction on CNBC and per the uh, Wall Street analysts that they had on at the time, they saw almost no world where the board would, would be able to reject this from right. a pure fiduciary responsibility, which they legally have to uphold, which puts them in a real bind, right, Marshall? I mean, it's like, they can't be like, well, this doesn't align with values of the company. That, that stuff that's doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had Alex Kantowitz on uh, yeah. Breaking Points last week um, where I did an interview, and he made this point, and this is like really fascinating, right? So mm. that number, $350 million of profit the past two years, aka this company is not performing well, everything that Elon is talking about, we need more free speech, we need more um, those different bits, all of those things don't actually align with Twitter doing better as a company. So I'm not saying this is going to make it easy to stop mm-hmm. the takeover bid. It's just like a really interesting dynamic. So like everything you're talking about, right? Like that sounds like a great newspaper, like what you're describing, like people are free, there is speech, there is debate, people can be contentious. But at the same time, like Alex was pointing out that well, how do most of the big tech companies actually make money? Google, yeah. like, oh, like Facebook, it's ads. TikTok ads too. Twitter, if you are a advertising, if you're a company who wants to buy advertising, the thing you are not going to be super willing to do, mm-hmm. if you're not willing to spend money already, is oh by the way, Twitter's going to be even more open. Oh, yeah. yeah, So like well, once I'm again, gonna... it's just like newspaper side, great business yeah. side. I would not want to work a here. Bad business. Yeah, like that's the takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't they experimenting with some like premium fee? No one's paying. Who's going to pay so, for that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Crystal's most exclusive tweets. <laughs> a single person who is actually using that function. Well, like, I, don't I don't know anybody. I will show all of you CNN my Plus. nipple if you follow me on Twitter yeah. Premium. If you even wanted to go there, OnlyFans would be a better use of your time. That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's actually a, like, if, we, if the world needs right. this content, we should make it of OnlyFans and be far more better than like a Twitter thing. All right, okay. we'll table that idea. Yeah, we have to table this. It's 1130. We got to make sure that we... It's 1130 and we're already talking about yeah. OnlyFans. We're talking so about OnlyFans. On. We have to cover the real issues. Because what the people ask for is some deep sub here and so actually the number one issue and I don't think it was that close in terms of the voting uh, uh, well it was like they, so the top two were basically tied oh the top yeah. two okay yeah. so number one issue that you guys asked for us to talk about is something that we've covered a number of times on the show but it's housing mm-hmm. um, and it's particularly relevant this week because of course we just got a sort of stunningly bad inflation report and a significant part of that had to do with shelter costs that's both home prices and rent. Both parts of that obviously incredibly significant because so much of people's paycheck goes to shelter. And also because really 
the only way to get ahead and have sort of the stable classic American dream in this country is to become a homeowner. And that's the way that we've set things up. The fact that asset prices go up much, much more quickly than wages do, uh, wages are actually you know falling behind, especially with inflation, means that this is incredibly central to inequality, culture, society, the fabric of the nation, all of those things. So here's some some latest stats to kind of get us kickstarted. Um, we're looking at a Bloomberg article. Uh, the headline is rent inflation shows that landlords have the upper hand again, pointing to massive spikes across the country. Um, it started in sort of the cities that people were fleeing to, the, the Sunbelt cities. That's where rent spikes started. But now it's become a nationwide trend. They also say right at the beginning of the pandemic, you see this radical shift where the average rental cost in a city, if it's higher than the U.S. median rent, people mass exited that city. And if it's lower, people were mass entering that city. The places with the highest inflation right now are the ones that saw really significant demand shocks from changes in migration trends. So you're having now this sort of national increase in rent prices that are hitting people absolutely everywhere. Right here in New York City, and this is from a New York Times article, you had prices spike a third in a single year. Yep. Wow. So from January 2021 to January 2022, prices went up by a third. Third. So you had a lot of people who thought, oh, my God, I can finally afford to actually live in Manhattan or actually live in the neighborhood that I wanted to. They got in during the pandemic, you know, helped support those landlords who were going through mm -hmm. tough times. And then the, when the renewal came up the next year, they're completely priced down. They, they don't have a prayer. And the other piece here is that home prices are also skyrocketing, not just because we've had a continued uh, inflation of an asset bubble, but also because now with the Fed raising interest rates, that means that mortgage rates are going up. That makes home prices even less affordable for people, especially first-time home buyers that don't have it all in hand in cash to put down or who can't get it from mommy and daddy. Well, what does that mean? That means those people, instead of being able to buy a house, are going to have to rent. And that, again, increases the rent prices. Um, the last trend that we've tracked, of course, closely is the fact that in some of these markets, it's like a third to a quarter of the uh, a quarter to a third of the buyers are not regular people. It's permanent capital. It's massive influxes of these gigantic companies that want to become America's landlord and to change the American dream from you own your own home till We'll rent you the home with the white picket fence. Yeah, let me just zoom in on one of the most important stats here, which is that the monthly mortgage payment that it takes to buy a typical home in the United States is now up by 55% compared from the start of last year. Jesus. Just the monthly mortgage payment. Yeah. Now, this is actually something that Chris Lieben really focused on, which is when the Federal Reserve raising its interest rates and throwing kind of a change in all of the interest rates also that all of us are experiencing, is that we have had the sharpest rise in mortgage interest rates in modern American history. Just in the last two months, rates have gone up from 3 to 5%. You compound that over the lifetime of a 30-year mortgage, that's potentially hundreds of thousands that's of right. dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars in the average home market. Same thing in terms of New York City. My own sister lives here um, in New York. Marshall, I'm sure you're hearing from a lot of friends. Like the COVID price got so many people into living situations. And given that work from home and all that has actually remained static, a lot of people are now going to have to bite a major bullet. 
and potentially have to see a 50 or 60% increase in rent here in the city, even though uh, their commiserate salary and all that, frankly, faced with inflation, has gone down relative to what they're able to pay. Yeah, I think the part that I want to pick up on you're discussing is the depressing narrative part of this, right? So Mm. like COVID, I shouldn't have to say this, insert is the worst thing that's happened in all of our lifetimes, obviously. Yeah. But especially in the summer, once the lockdowns ended, you had this story of, hey, COVID has now helped everyone realize that in a lot of professions, you don't have to actually go into an office and you don't actually have to live in New York. And we could have this bountiful future where maybe you want to live in Tulsa. Maybe you want to live in South Carolina. Like you could have this place where it's not as if, you know, if, if, if the American dream of you buying like a nice house in Long Island is probably gone. But guess what? The good news is the Internet has made it so that you could basically live anywhere. If you're a white collar. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, and this is the thing. Big if. But, but here's the key thing. Even that white collar story hasn't played out. Like that's like what's actually like really yeah. fascinating to me, which is yeah, that right. like, only the like, richer. What I actually right recently now. heard is that more people have moved to New York now <laughs> than actually were moving to New York before COVID. Hmm. So what you're really seeing there is that what you saw, what, what people wanted to have happen is that the internet would like disperse, decentralize, like weaken the power of these big cities, DC, New York, LA. It didn't happen. And so I think it just, it's it's an important story, even if you're like not a white collar person, because I'm not trying to claim a sob story about like Google employees. It's more just that I think there are so many instances like this of us not being critical and making like how many books were written the past two or three years claiming that this wouldn't happen. Oh, like how right. many takes were right. there that like, no worries, guys, like all oh, this is well, basically solved now. If, if I pick up on that, and this is fascinating before I go to you, Kyle, which is that people were like, oh, well, people will leave New York and people will go and they'll go to Boise, which happened. You know, rent inflation in Boise mm-hmm. is up like 50%. Well, here's what happened. Now rent is high here and in Boise. Mm, right. Now rent is high here right. and in Austin. Rent is high here and in Dallas. Rent is high here and in Tampa. We had some of the places that there. So instead of what's happened is you've had the rich folks here who have had a massive increase in their price of their home. Also, the people who have the money are relatively fleeing, driving up the price in other cities. But it's priced out. Basically, anybody who makes this less than, what, $350,000 a year? That's like 96% yeah. of the U.S. I mean, population. the average home yeah. price, the average yeah. is now a half a million dollars. Right. Yeah, that's insane. It's fucking crazy. So yeah. one of the things, I remember there was an article maybe about a year ago <clears throat> that came out and explained how one of the thing that's ha- things that's happening is like BlackRock and some other Wall Street ghouls are going around buying up all the houses and then just renting them back to people. Yes. Correct? So in a way, we sort of reinflated the bubble just through a different path, the, the 2008 uh, bubble that burst. Um, so, uh, you know, I look at that and I say, I, are we going to avoid it bursting again? Is it not going to burst because it's BlackRock who owns it and is renting it out to everybody? Or is it still going to burst? And the other fact that sticks out in my mind is that um, one of the reasons why you've had this push from the government to get people back into the office is because the commercial real estate bubble yeah. was going to burst yeah. if people didn't go back to the office. Yeah. So there's sort of like a nefarious motive along those lines as well. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Not to mention bosses just like want your ass in a chair where they can like watch your every right. move. Control even you. if you were per- perfectly productive um, on your own time. Yeah, I mean, this is also a generational story because... We already have the stats to know that millennials are hitting every financial milestone later than boomers Mm -hmm. and older generations did. So 
They're, you know, getting married later. They're starting families later. And they're owning homes later. And this is, I've come to realize that this really is central to sort of class dynamics in the country, perhaps even more so than wages and your work status, because the way that the economy works is if you are an asset owner, everything is basically set up for you. I mean, it's a very powerful constituency. Homeowners are a very powerful constituency. That's why the logic of the market has been home prices going up and up and up and up because this is a powerful constituency that benefits from that policy. So you are never going to be able to really get on the rung of that sort of stable middle-class life where you have a nest egg and you have something you can pass forward to your children if you're not able to get into the housing market. I mean, this is how middle-class wealth is built in this country. And increasingly, the, to, to Marshall's point, even the white-collar worker, two-income white-collar workers in expensive cities can't do it unless they have mommy and daddy's help. And this is, you know, this isn't just anecdotal. These are what the statistics bear out is that increasingly first-time buyers have to get that massive lump sum payment from mom and dad. And so it also makes hardens intergenerational wealth divides Mm -hmm. as well where if your parents were able to buy in and do well and able to help you out, then you are set up to be part of that class that makes it. And it just exacerbates these massive divides in this country. And that has obviously massive implications in terms of racial wealth disparities as well. And all of these things become incredibly important. So the sort of asset-owning, non-asset-owning divide in the country has become almost more central than anything else. So what I'm wondering, though, is... I think we did a great job like setting up like the state of affairs. Like Mm -hmm. what actually does one do now? Because to your point, Kyle, like thinking of, okay, there was this huge housing market crash in the 2000s. The history here is complicated and like it's a little more than just like the big short story. But part of the story there is that a huge priority for the Bush administration very explicitly was, hey, like let's increase home ownership. Uh, And there's a conversation about how like the way they ended up doing that ended up benefiting Wall Street and all these disasters. But they start there was this actual startership of like Bush framed as like you want the ownership society. This this was going to be and this this was part of their broad like privatizing Social Security pitch. So like I'm not I'm not saying like this is a good thing, (laughs) but like we saw an attempt. So like what what would be y'all's version of what how should we make this better then? On that, it's a good point. And really, what it is is that we loosened the regs 2003 onward and made it almost too laissez-faire, both for the people who are borrowing, but worse also for the commoditization of that, and then Mm -hmm. did nothing about it. So the problem, I think, is that we've actually gone too far in the other direction, Mm -hmm. which is that now we've put all of these onerous regulation on the banks. So what you just noted, Crystal, about the average home price is officially over half a million dollars. Well, that means that 50% of Americans now don't just have to qualify for a mortgage, they have to qualify for a jumbo mortgage, which actually the banks themselves have much more strict regulations in terms of who they're going to loan to, which makes you even more disproportionately likely in order to need your parents and their credit score in order to sign on for your mortgage application. Limits the uh, amount of the pool of people. So what I would say is that from the Federal Reserve, and you know this is a complicated story too, but on their front, 
they need to focus continually on the second part of their mandate, which is full employment. And when you focus on full employment and not just on uh, on interest rates as the only like, sledgehammer that you have, then we're talking about wages. And that has to be the number one focus of the administration. Also, I would note, I mean, we you know, this isn't this is a policy show more so than the current news, but there's a reason that Joe Biden has a 26% approval rating amongst yeah, young people. That's right. And like this is part yeah. of it. I mean young people are like, what? hey, I cannot win in the current society. My solution, to the extent I have any, which I'm not sure I do, but I think why not go back to the same regulations that when they were in place, we had a generation of stability and economic security for the country, what's generally called the golden age of economic expansion. And so, like, for example, the fact that when the crash hit in 08, it immediately in the aftermath of that, they didn't just put back in Glass-Steagall and that was viewed as like too extreme to go back to Glass-Steagall. Well, that arguably the separation of commercial banking and investment banking was arguably one of the things that, you know, kept the economy safe and, and functioning in a relatively safe way. So, I mean, I would just look to the past and the New Deal regulations and whatever worked in the past you need to implement now and then whatever new issues arise you have to come up with intelligent regulations You've got to attack to make this work. thing at every level because as we started off talking you know the fact that people can't afford a home puts pressure on the rental market and then you know makes it difficult to afford even a, a rental home and then contributes to the massive exploding issue of homelessness that yeah. every single city in the country in small town Frank I mean I see people who are homeless in my little town tiny town in King George County in Fredericksburg, Virginia that I never saw before in my entire life. So you have to start at every level. You have to have a massive influx of affordable housing. You have to have a radical rethink of homeless policy and move in the direction of housing first and getting people the services that they need on top of that so that you expand the pool in terms of the rental market. Obviously, right now, there's also a housing supply shortage because of the supply chain. So dealing with that is another important part of the problem. I would be perfectly comfortable with laws that personally ban BlackRock and those people from buying up entire neighborhoods. But if people don't want to go that far, you could certainly have regs in place that privilege individual homeowners who get the first crack at the house. And it's basically like if there's no one who will come in at the market price, you know, as an individual homeowner, um, then maybe we could consider a BlackRock bid or some other permanent capital, you know, larger financial institution. I think that would make a big difference, especially in some of these Sunbelt cities where you've got 20, 30 percent of the uh, the home purchases, single-family home purchases, are not from individual homeowners. The other piece I think you have to deal with is that lump sum payment. I mean, how many stories have re- we read about people who, they're like, okay, I, listen, it's tough, but I can do the half a million dollar house. Mm-hmm. But I don't have half a million dollars literally sitting in, in my cash. bank account in <laughs> cash to put down. So the government programs we have in place right now in terms of mortgages are all set up to help people to get the mortgage to be able to make the payment. We have to have programs in place to help people get that lump sum payment down um, who can't get it for mommy and dad. Or at but least okay, not well, that just goes to right. wages, though, no? doesn't that, uh, That's what I would say. Well, well, well that's yeah. part of it, too, well, yeah. for sure. I'll give a quick anecdote that speaks to this. So I, I'm... You know, I'm renting. I got a I got a great pandemic deal, and I've discovered. And because once again, like, and th- this is what's so toxic. Like, I did not realize that, like, at 30, I could buy a home. So I didn't think. So I haven't thought. But I just started thinking about. Yeah. Addicted to Zillow, I can make mortgage payments. Like relative to what was spent. I live in Williamsburg, right. New York. Like COVID, like rent deals mm-hmm. are over. Like I could easily get a mortgage. 
but guess what? I don't have that lump sum payment. Right. So like that, that, that's, that is what it is. And it's kind of like, and that's the insane part. I just want to add one thing on this too, sorry, because Crystal, I'm glad you talked about Fredericksburg because I think we've been focused really on like a national scale politics thing, but the local thing, the story you're telling about affordable housing, the story you're telling about new construction, that's actually very local and very yes. state-based. Yes. So I know that you and I disagree a bit on like the Yimby NIMBY thing. Mm. So- and there's complications there. So for example, like I understand why a local community would say like, hey, like we don't want to like wake up one day and all of a sudden there's always like huge giant condos next to us in order to qualify as affordable housing. So this is a key task for local state politicians, which is how do we balance, hey, communities should decide what they want to look like with, hey, actually there's this generational crisis. Yeah. And I, what, I, what I don't think is happening right now is right now you have politicians who are worried about, hey, we don't want to have old homeowners get worried about their community changing. They are, but they are not thinking about, hey, let's balance that with the fact yeah. that people like us, frankly, who are like privileged in our own way, yeah. people who aren't even us don't even factor in it at all. I, I, do, I don't think there are basically any governors who are thinking. No, that. they're not. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And I mean, look, it, it, if you leave it up to the communities, I mean, I feel like nobody cares about homelessness enough to actually do a housing first policy because there's not much, there's no money in that. And it's, you know, you're doing something that's almost purely altruistic in a sense. If you do housing first and then add like well, rehabilitation centers. It can also centers. increase the value of your house. What's like, that? Speak, coming from LA, like, look, if they cleaned up Skid Row, like that would dramatically increase the value but, of like all the property. Around, but cleans right? up yeah. means what? Does it mean criminalize sure. them, crack totally. down on them, throw well, them in the question, Kyle. Right. Yeah, like, that's, that's a great mean, question. Like, and that's, yeah. why, that's why it is what it is in right, terms of the status quo. Right. Because it's easier to do It's cheaper to just criminalize, clean up, do what Eric Adams is doing in New York than it is to actually have a housing first policy, I, I think, which is complicated and, and I, difficult. And I would say on the, just to put a cap on it, it, banking regs is a huge part of this because what you're getting to, and Crystal, you alluded to this. I have heard so many stories of people who have 10% down, but then they get outbid by somebody who has it, the entire thing in cash. Right. So really what it is, is that there are certain regs, which already have this in place in terms of the way that neighborhoods and others are allowed to discriminate is you have to make it so that the banks themselves can cannot discriminate, quote unquote, against that, as long as you're good for it whenever it comes to the mortgage loan itself, I think you gotta, which would level the playing field. I think you got to privilege regular- Right, even privilege it. Regular right. people yeah, I, over yeah. permanent capital because, and there's a big cultural issue here as well because, you know, you end up with a, a more transient population. Already we have communities that are just completely sort of rootless and degraded and people feeling adrift. And I, I do think that's part of sort of the, the core rot and degradation of the countries. Another issue. Yes, number two. Number two Tied. on we the list. It. We solved it. We so solved we it. figured yeah. out housing. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to tackle healthcare, guys. Um, so the the specific language we put in that you guys voted for is basically like, what happened to healthcare? I mean, we had this entire, certainly the, uh, well, even going back to to Trump's time in office, I mean, the Republicans were very focused on healthcare in an extremely deleterious way. John McCain gives this famous mm -hmm. thumb down and they decided basically like, you know what, we're actually, we're not going to do anything about healthcare um, at all. And then you have a Democratic primary that really centers around the debate between Medicare for all and, you know, expanding Obamacare. And the voters routinely said, we want Medicare for all. But then they also went ahead and said, but the number one thing we care about is beating Trump. And right. we believe Joe Biden can do that and not Bernie Sanders. But then you have a pandemic that hits. And so you think, you would think that as you're witnessing in real time, 
the manifest failures, deadly failures of our healthcare system vis-a-vis the rest of the developed world, that that would increase the political pressure and impetus to actually have a, a decent healthcare system where people are able to afford and get care. And in fact, the exact opposite has happened. And it's even worse than, you know, the most basic, obvious, popular among 90% of Americans reforms like decreasing prescription drug prices and allowing uh, the Medicare program to be able to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies on prescription drug prices. Not only is that off the table, but I was looking this morning, um, the lever is reporting that they're actually going in the opposite direction. They're they're private, further privatizing Medicare and pushing seniors who don't even know this is happening to them into privatized systems that have been proven to have much higher rates there. They got to get their profit margin. So the much less money is going to care and much more is just going to fatten their bank accounts and fatten their wallets. So it's not even just that healthcare has disappeared. It's that things are actively getting worse. And then the last part of this um, that is also very disheartening is the one thing that Democrats did when they first came in and they passed the CARES Act is they included in there some subsidies for Obamacare so that um, people could more easily afford their health care premiums. But just as with the child tax credit, they made it temporary. So mm. now in October, right before Election Day, Millions of Americans, most of them like older middle class Americans, exactly the type of people who vote in the midterm elections in October, they're going to get an, a letter informing them that their health insurance premiums on the Obamacare exchange market are about to skyrocket. So it's like worse than doing nothing. If you ask uh, Americans, Kyle, they still will tell you healthcare is if not their inflation is number one probably now, but healthcare is always number two, number three on the list of their top priorities. And yet the political class has abandoned it entirely. Yeah, look, this is, I'm a simple man. I'm a straightforward man. I'm not a genius. What I did is I went and looked at the various studies about the various healthcare systems around the world. And consistently, time and time again, the answers are clear. When the Commonwealth Fund does their study, which they do like every other year, something like that, we came in 11th out of 11 of developed countries for our healthcare system. So it's not like, we don't know what the answers are. Of course, we know what the answers are. Now, is there room for some debate? Of course, you could have a debate about what kind of particular universal healthcare system you want to have. You could look at the British system, for example, which is public funding of public hospitals and doctors. So everything is public. Everything is nationalized. Or you could look at a Canadian style system or like a French style system where it's public funding of some private institutions and private doctors and private hospitals. That's all a reasonable debate and discussion to have. But that is really the Overton window that makes sense in that conversation. What we do here with our private health care system is a, and private health insurance system is a total mess. And the only reason why we haven't gotten to a place where we've implemented one of the systems that works better is because of the influence of the health insurance companies. They buy Republican and Democratic politicians. And so what they're buying is... Um, the status quo, the ability to continue the status quo, they can keep making a tremendous amount of money. Even Obamacare, that was an idea that was originally birthed by the Heritage Foundation. It was a right-wing think tank that came up with that. And it right. used to be supported by Chuck Grassley and Newt Gingrich Mitt Romney and Mitt Romney. And then yeah. the Democrats moved to the Republican position. The Republicans said, well, now our position is let's not do anything at all. And so those are your options now. Your options are, uh, you know, a, a very corporate plan and the complete status quo. And so uh, it drives me crazy because this is one of those things where 
I see the answer. I know what the answer is. And the reason why we don't do it is because of the corruption in D.C. I will say this, though, and this is actually uh, also the meta question which we asked, which is what happened to the healthcare debate. I think the culture war is what happened in the, the healthcare debate, which is that. And, Crystal, I think we talked about this on a more recent show, mm-hmm. but I was alluding to this. It's like, look, the co- current look at the public health bureaucracy and the current level of trust in that zero. And it's like. Oh, and then somebody wants to empower them. So the amount of trust that you're going to have to win back with the American people in the current health infrastructure is immense. And I, and I don't, I don't if I know. agree with that, though, because people still very much like Medicare. I mean, Medicare is Old still like Medicare. Medicare is still very popular. And still, if you poll people, I mean, they're on board for certainly lowering the Medicare age significantly. They're certainly on board for, you know, the really incrementalist changes like the negotiating the prescription drug prices. So I don't know that like distaste for Fauci mm-hmm. has lessened people's interest in having affordable health care. Go ahead, Marshall. But it's like you said, though, Kyle, and this fits in with what you just said, Crystal. That's the status quo. So right. no matter so no matter what like meta, so yes so like and you even said incrementalist too so the problem so I guess here's what I'll say so one quick question to you Kyle and I, I mean this like in total good faith do you talk to Republicans about like and I just mean like normie Republicans about healthcare uh well I mean I have some Republicans in my family but we don't talk about almost any of that stuff mm-hmm. Sagar you and I like just through DC social circle the Republicans who deeply oppose changing the healthcare system are not bought off by big pharma. Oh, with by, the Republicans, but, it's also ideological. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, we can't that's, that's ignore the, their Blue yeah. Cross Blue Shield donations and things of that nature. But I, I'm not saying you can He's ignore it. No, I'm talking about lawmakers. I'm not talking about the no, people, but, to be no, clear. But, here's, but here's, here's my thing. Like, I, I promise you that if you, let's say you just like magically snapped your fingers and Blue Cross Blue Shield just cannot donate money, I guarantee you, and this goes to Sagar's culture report point, that is not determining the broad opposition to it. Uh, I think we're in the middle of this. Oh, I think it is. Really? I, it, in D.C., for sure. In D.C., well, for sure. With Republicans, it is ideological and corrupt. With Democrats, it's just corrupt because they all know that the right answer is Medicare for all. But even in terms of your broader point, point, some yeah. polls have a majority of Republicans that want Medicare for all. I don't, so I, among the, the population, it's just it's this simple idea of you walk up to somebody on the street and you go, hey, man, should everybody have health care? We spend $7 trillion on war, but we don't. We can't give everybody health care in what's supposed to be the richest country in the world. And people have a gut instinct, and they're like, well, of course everybody should have health care. And that includes Republicans. No, definitely true. But once again, this is where the culture war comes in. And if you ask those people, what's their fear? Centralized authority, right? They're like, well, I don't want these people telling me that I can't you know, do this, and I have to get but seizure it's a, But it's me a health insurance get... company that does it now. Oh, wait, 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 sorry, wait, sorry, but, quick, but sorry, let's just be clear. Yeah. Republicans aren't in charge right now. True. And That's right. Joe yeah. Biden ran on public option and he ran very much. Democrats have been running for literally more than a decade now on Medicare negotiating prescription drug prices. And furthermore, it's a pandemic and there Joe Biden has the authority to use emergency powers to expand Medicare during a health Emergency. So Libby, Montana, for example, almost all the residents of this small town in Montana have Medicare and they love it. And by the way, it's a bunch of Republicans <laughs> mm-hmm. because um, their senator, Max Baucus, who was very opposed to Medicare for all at the time, but he fought to get that provision put into Obamacare because they were poisoned by uh, industrial company mining and asbestos and it was a total mess. They deserve Medicare. The entire country deserves Medicare. So 
when we're asking the question, what happened to it? The Republicans at this point aren't really relevant to the debate. I think much more illuminating is what happened in California with Gavin Newsom. I mean, in California, you had Democrats who have a supermajority in the House and the Senate. They've got the governorship. Freaking Gavin Newsom, not only did he run on Medicare for all, he castigated other Democratic politicians, mocked them relentlessly for pretending they support single payer and then getting in there and saying, oh, it's this, I can't, and it's just too hard, et cetera, et cetera. And then when it came down to it, Ultimately, they got massive donations in from the health insurance companies. He was given out favorable pandemic contracts to some of these same people in what looked like blatant pay to play. Democratic Party was getting direct donations. And lo and behold, they don't even take the vote. So you are right. Republicans have an absolute ideological opposition to single payer health care. Elected no doubt Republicans, about it. Elected, the lawmakers, elected right. Republicans, no doubt about it. There is a significant strain of Republicans generally at the grassroots level who are mistrustful of the government, although those people also really like Medicare. Correct. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of right now, what happened to the health care debate? That's all about the Republicans and being more concerned with their corporate donors. I mean, than the Democrats. With, I mean, yeah. with yeah. the Democrats and being more concerned with their corporate donors than ultimately what they ran on and what their base and the American people want. The one area I will spotlight on this is the prescription drug thing. Like, that's crazy. Like, even Democrats, I mean, sorry, even most Republicans actually agree with mm-hmm. that. Uh, like, yeah. uh, like, in terms of vote well, It's like league. literally so 90% Trump, Trump ran on that. <laughs> so, so, so why don't any of them do it? It's like Crystal well, said. Not, it's all fair, about the influence no, of the that, money. That is actually where I will say that's where the influence comes in, and that's what happened under Trump. If I recall, it was a titanic fight just to get a change in the HHS regulation in order to require – it was like approval on pharmaceutical advertising on television. And this was a huge thing within the Trump administration. It was like an all-out fight. Alex Azar versus Kellyanne Conway, who I think was on the right side of this issue, weirdly enough, uh, TBT. But – even She's they, a poster. Yeah, it's right. Not a shocker. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah, not a shocker like, and she'd I be on the right side. I guess, yeah, well, not here, ideological. Let me, so give, that's a good thing. let me give Trump a little bit of credit here. Yeah. One of the things they did pass was this transparency in pricing. Right. Like, it's a sort of like libertarian yeah. idea. But this is, you know, Super okay. Super low bar. Worth, worthwhile to be able to know, like, yeah. this hospital is going to charge me $10,000 and this one's going to charge me $100,000. And sometimes the price disparities are that great. Well, guess what? The hospitals just said, nah, we're not going to do it. Like, we know this is literally legally required of us, and we just don't really give a shit. So a bunch of the hospitals didn't even do it. So again, as like the lowest bar possible, this is something that Biden's HHS could go after, and are they? But no. but also, I feel like that whole debate is so misleading because it's like, we're it's not, nothing really comes of that. In the same way that they have these laws about, um, you know, you have to show who your donors are and who yeah. funded your campaign or who funded your super PAC. And so the debate we're having is like, I want to be corrupt in secret and not show who's paying well, me. And the give, other ones are like, I want to be corrupt, but show give, you who's paying me. And it's like, let's just not be though, corrupt. <laughs> because agreed, yeah. obviously agreed. And you and I are obviously on the same page in terms of healthcare policy. But, um, you know, I think about the potential stock trading ban. Sure. That the reason that's even on the table is because some transparency and disclosure uh, the Stock Act was passed that required members of Congress to at least expose what their conflicts of interest are. 
um, and what trades they were ultimately making. And because we had that information, then you had unusual whales um, picking up on that and diving into the data and say, oh, look, look at what Nancy Pelosi is doing here. Oh, look at what Dan Crenshaw is doing here. Look at what these lawmakers are doing during the pandemic. That sparked a real mass populist sort of uprising and disgust at that corruption. And that has helped create an impetus for change to where now I just saw, you know, just this morning, there's an additional movement on a potential stock trading ban. So is transparency the end all be all? No. Can it be a helpful tool for galvanizing public support and political pressure for doing the right thing? Yeah, it can be. You're undoubtedly correct about that. But all I'm voicing is the frustration that we're taking baby steps. It's like we're running a hundred yard dash. We run five yards and start celebrating that we ran five yards. It's like, I'm like, I want to get to the 100 yard line. Mm -hmm. And so it's just frustrating that like we have to take these baby wins in the same way that with Obamacare, you could say, look, you start changing the system a little bit and then maybe you'll pick up momentum and change it more. And it's like, yeah, maybe. And that's a good thing. And I'm happy that millions more people got health care. What about the 30 million that don't have it right now? So I'm just voicing my frustration that it's like in Washington, they need these baby steps, whereas we're sitting here. And if you look at it objectively, you're like, can you just stop with the baby steps and take a couple leaps, please? Catch up to the rest of the world? Yeah. I think a lot of that requires political consensus, unfortunately. And, like, that is where – that's where I just always come back to this. I'm just like, man, like, when you're this divided – look, I mean, we talked about the child tax credit, right? Like, at the end of the day, child tax credit expired. Millions of people went more into poverty. But, like, do you see a mass uprising? Now, I'm not saying it didn't hurt them on the Democratic base, but a legitimate mass uprising? No, like, it's not happening. But, but, it but did the hurt people them. are there, though. That's it, the thing. It did hurt them in the polls, oh, oh, certainly. I mean, and that's yeah, what I'm we, saying. We were the yeah. people the are there, but they're not marching in the streets over the, you know, the, extent, the extended child tax yeah. credit going so, away. Well, but this goes to Sagar's point, though. Yeah. And this is the problem. Polls aren't consensus. So, like, something I'm, I'm, I've never heard, like, a perfect answer to this question, so I'm not expecting one here. I will give you one. Like, <laughs> yeah, setting that up. Um <laughs> American politics, when we passed like Medicare, Medicaid, like the policies that obviously we're not like, we're lauding them and we support them on a policy level, but they're also politically popular. American politics was corrupt as hell. Like, at, like actually, like LBJ was like fundamentally corrupt at a level that like, you think Nancy Pelosi's stock trading is bad? Like, yeah, he's like bags of cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> literally, like, literally bought his way into the Senate. <laughs> Yet, even in that system of corruption, you pass these popular consensus-based policies. So the question I just really want to understand better is separate from just the polling, like, and this is what you're kind of getting at, like, why is there not, like, because like, let me put it this way, and maybe you, you guys are going to push back on me when I say this, but I actually think if the people of West Virginia actually wanted, deeply in the streets wanted Medicare for all, then Joe Manchin would support it. Because yes, Joe Manchin, you could say he's corrupt. You could say he cares about donations. He cares about power. He wants to get reelected. That yeah, is all Joe Manchin. Joe, Joe Manchin would much rather be in the Senate than get like a 50K mm, check. No, no here's, here's, here's why that. I disagree. There was a poll on Build Back Better in West Virginia of likely voters. And it, was, it wasn't just the majority of Democrats and the majority of independents. It was even a majority of Republicans that liked the original Build Back Better proposal. And so- that was the case. And Manchin stuck his middle finger up because he had another thing he could do to garner support, which was a little bit of a bait and switch and a culture war trick. He was able to posture like, you know, I'm against the, the leadership in the Democratic Party because I'm a good old West Virginia Democrat and I'm more moderate. So as long as he takes that line 
and doesn't get into the specifics of what he's actually against, then he could still have a political win, even though he's doing something that's deeply unpopular when you get into the specifics of it. You see what I'm saying? It's too easy. With a media that doesn't educate people enough about what really is going on, it's too easy for him to mislead people into thinking, like, I'm the iconoclast maverick who's doing the right thing, when if you look at the specifics of what he's doing, it's actually deeply disliked, according to the numbers. Joe Manchin has a direct financial interest in maintaining the energy policy Correct. that we have right now. I mean, direct, like status quo equals Joe Manchin makes more money. And do I think that that impacts what he does? A hundred percent. Now, what I will say that is, you know, gets the point of, well, why is it now that um, none of these big things can happen anymore when, you know, it was pre-corrupt back in LBJ's day mm. as well. And I do think that part of that is, um, culture war and the fact that because you've had this uh, neoliberal market-driven consensus now for 40 years, which has been on both sides of the aisle, there isn't any sort of belief that, yeah, that the government can actually deliver for you in a meaningful way. And so instead of like people being in the streets for Medicare for all during a pandemic, instead, you know, they're much more focused on these sort of like culture war signaling fights because they don't think either of these parties is going to deliver for them. They're right. And so instead they're like, well, at least I can like show my support for the one that doesn't have contempt for me and who I am that I feel like is on the right side of these sort of like cultural signaling debates that ultimately are very low stakes in terms of the day-to-day life. Let me just say though, I think it is more corrupt today because it's institutionally corrupt today. So there were a number of Supreme Court decisions that started in the 1970s and number of cases related to that continue up till today. You know, the most recent ones like Citizens United, McCutcheon, but I'm talking going all the way back to like Buckley versus uh, Vallejo and mm-hmm. um, First National Bank of Boston versus Bellotti. These are the original cases in the 1970s that basically started to legalize money as speech. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're allowing for legalized bribery and huge campaign contributions from, from corporations and from billionaires. And it's as a direct result of that that's why we are where we are today. Yeah, it, it was corrupt back in the day, of course, with LBJ. I mean, politics has always been corrupt. I'm sure you've seen the movie Lincoln, where the way he had to go about, you know... The plot line, the central plot line. Yeah, <laughs> so, like, it's always been corrupt, but now it's institutionally corrupt, where, like, in order to even win in D.C., it's like you have to take money from all these different lobbyists and all these different industries, and then you're first and foremost representing them, whereas back in the day, at least with the Democrats for an extended period of time, there was a time when they didn't take corporate money. I mean, that was what Bill Clinton and the DLC was all about. It was like, now we're going to be more like Republicans. Yeah. We're going to take the corporate money. Well, there was a time when they only took like union money and, and teacher money it, and lawyer it's money. It's hard to challenge corporate power. It's hard to change the economic status quo. Those things are difficult. It's easy as hell to get on Twitter and, you know, send out some like you know, on the left, some super like woke identitarian thing that ultimately is signaling that I'm a good person, but I'm not actually going to do anything about like the the issues that I claim to care about. And on the right to jump in on like the don't say gay bill or Stop whatever, like steal. those things are easy to do. It's a it's easy to kneel in kente cloth. It's a lot harder to like actually unionize Amazon workers and make sure that black lives actually matter in this country. And so the fact that politicians have been rewarded for those cheap and easy culture war displays, well, then that's where the incentives lie. And like I said, I don't think that's a fault of the American people. I think they're right to be skeptical that any of the material 
projects that they might be interested in that they might feel really benefit their families are very unlikely to come to pass. And, you know, this past year with the complete crumbling and dissolution of Build Back Better is as good an example as that's ever been. Yeah, I'll square the circle and I'll say I think it's corruption and I do think it's also just lack of institution, uh, lack of uh, political consensus overall. And the reason why Joe Manchin gets reelected is because at the end of the day- Political consensus among who? Uh, well, amongst, frankly, the people who vote. And I think that's the other problem, which is that per what you're saying, 100, I mean, but I, I don't talk See, about but like $15 minimum wage, there's a huge political consent. There's a huge political consensus for the prescription drug thing. I mean, there are plenty, the stock ban, like mm-hmm. there are issues that have a mass political consensus. A lot of them. And it just doesn't matter. But then they don't vote on that, unfortunately. Like consensus the people who But they vote. do when they're, when, they're, when they're asked to directly vote on the issue as such. Like remember, right. Trump won the state of Florida, but yeah, 60% of the Florida wage. voters voted for the minimum wage. I, t- I totally right. agree with you. I, what I was just saying is that from, my, from what I've seen with Trump, like, and this is what really broke a lot of the way I look at politics, is you can get 10 million more votes and just piss off libs. And that's a very, that's a sad but powerful lesson, which is if you're an aspiring Republican politician or a Joe Manchin, like, what do you learn from that? Which is that I can literally win re-election and not do yeah. anything. Right. Right. Like, that's kind yeah. of crazy. The, the, the sideshow is powerful. Yes, yeah. you're, you're 100% yeah. correct. And that's easy to do. Yeah. The material politics do move voters. I mean, the people who lost the child tax credit they were in favor of Democrats in the midterms, and now they're in favor of Republicans. Yes. They shifted or more dramatically not or not voting than any other group. So it's not that material politics don't influence people or that they don't vote on it. It's that the other stuff is so easy that that's all where all the incentives are uh, for politics. Sorry, the sideshow is strong. Yeah, I'll agree sorry, with you. I know you're sorry. talking about something. I just want to say a quick yeah. thing off of what Crystal said because I think what we're really getting at here at a meta, meta, meta level is just like a deep dearth of political talent. Because what you are describing, Crystal, is the ability to say, hey, it's like the cookie. It's like the marshmallow test, right? Hey, like there's this like super obvious thing. Right. But if I wait a second or I think a little deeper, there's this deeper thing. There's this amorphous, and that's that's what political greatness is, right? Like, for example, LBJ, LBJ, um, we're we're turning this into LBJ. He could have just rested on, hey, I'm Kennedy's Kennedy's guy. Um, And I just won the biggest presidential election in American history. I am going to chill. The thing that makes him great, despite Vietnam, despite all the mistakes towards the end, was really his his belief that there is this great society. And I'm going to, like, that is what greatness is and I don't he I do had not a see vision that. yes he had a this reminds me of the conversation we had at state of the union yeah mm-hmm. he had a vision and he used whatever was handed to him to make that vision reality and a great president right now has every crisis at his disposal mm-hmm. to use to galvanize the American people behind a true transformational program but that's not who Joe Biden is. And frankly, it's not what he has ever been. And it's not really what he was elected to be. 100%. And, you know, you talked about Lincoln. It was the same thing. The central premise of that movie was Lincoln was like, no, I need to pass the 13th Amendment right now because I foresee all of these political pitfalls in the future. And so I'm going to use this, you know, lame duck Congress in order to pass one of the most transformative amendments in American history. LBJ is an example. Great political talent uh, from um, let's say we're what what today rhymes the most with is probably the Gilded Age and the Age of Acrimony yeah. post Civil War. Yeah. Well, 
politics then sucked. Like, remember Rutherford B. Hayes? Not really. We don't. Most people don't. <laughs> it's like on yeah, a literal level. I am yeah, a yeah, Rutherford yeah. B. Hayes <laughs> yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grover He's Cleveland. He's got the posters in his room. It's yeah, adorable. It's like, <laughs> Grover Cleveland is super cool, right? Like, nobody talks about these people for a reason. And it was because at that time, we agreed on nothing. We actually got almost nothing done. Calvin Coolidge and all of that was, you know, kind of the median center of how people thought about politics. Or sorry, not Calvin Coolidge. Uh, uh, Hayes and those, uh, those po- politicians. Are. But then what happened is that a political genius, Theodore Roosevelt, comes in and rescues America from the Gilded Age by creating and transforming an entire new era with the progressive era, bringing in this type of uh, energy and change and shock to the system, which changes everything forever. And that is actually what we're missing more than anything. So I'll move us on to the next one, which everybody requested here, which is energy policy. And this is actually fits very neatly like a glove into this entire conversation. So I'm reading here from a tweet from Heather Long. We've discussed this on the show. Crude oil prices right now have fallen in the past month, but the average gas price is still above $4 a gallon. Why? Gas stations actually make the most of their profits when oil prices fall. I'm not going to sit here and demonize family-owned gas prices because this is a broader, bigger structural issue. The issue is that right now we have no political talent or thinking as to the long-term problem of how do we drop the actual gas price? And then beyond that, how do we make sure we're never in this situation again? What's fascinating is that the current drop in price has nothing, nothing to do with Joe Biden. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve and all that, as we predicted at the time, was going to have extraordinarily limited amount of impact on the long-term effect of oil. The reason why oil prices are down is because of the Chinese lockdown. Guess what you can't bank on for energy policy? China's going to remain locked down forever, which is going to drop our price. So we have no current strategic thinking in the White House as to, and look, we've talked a lot on the show, Crystal, about nuclear energy. I'm a yeah. nu- basically a nuclear maximalist. But there's no, dis- there's no discussion of this from a national policy perspective. By the way, I actually even checked. Tim Scott, the uh, state of South Carolina, gets a huge amount of their power from nuclear. There's actually pro-nuclear Republicans who are out there. I'm not saying they're not cringe in many other ways. However, there's no political talent in the White House beyond taking months to arrive at, oh, let's tap the SPR. I'm like, oh, what a genius move. You know, it's like that's what you should have been doing a year ago. It should have they should be taking the current cringe rhetoric around Putin's price hike, take it away from, you know, house household goods inflation and focus something purely and have a real national debate in terms of ga- uh, both on gas, in terms of long-term energy, and in terms of also pointing out the fossil fuel companies who are raking in profits right now. Go ahead, Kyle. So we're, we're the yeah. number one producer in the world of oil and gas. Do I have that right? Yes. The number one producer. The issue is we outsource most of it. Yeah. We, yeah. we, ship, a, we ship the va- not vast majority, about half to the global market. And this okay. is the other problem with oil, which is oil is truly global, is, is set by global supply so, which and is demand. Part of why the movement towards electric is important because the concept of energy independence kind of doesn't really make any sense when you have a global market. Electricity is something that has to be generated here, and then we can deal with what are the sources of that electricity. So let me just say, given that fact, why not nationalize it? I mean, there are a lot of other nations that have, yeah, yeah, oil that's nationalized, and they have the sovereign wealth fund in Norway, for example, right? right? I mean, there's the whole country is like phenomenally wealthy, and the standard of living is so high, and it's like... It's so weird that we have the, we have oil 
that's under the ground on our public land, but then a private corporation gets to come in and buy up the rights for pennies on the dollar and be like, well, now this is ours. And then they make a colossal amount of profit well, on and it. It's even why would we, that, why should we allow that? Because not only do they do that, then they capture our political system and right. we end up with, you know, Joe Manchin and all the many more bought off politicians like him driving policy instead of what is actually in the national interest. I mean, this is Matt Brunig's argument. And let's put aside the political realities and yeah. whether there's consensus around this, because we all know that this is not really on the table. Correct. But if you're just blue skying, what would be the best solution? You have this situation where in the short term, you actually want to ramp up production to deal with these price spikes. And in the long term, medium to long term, you want to ramp down production. So sure, could you come with, up with some elaborate system of tax credits and incentives that basically amount to more giveaways to oil? And, yeah, you could do that. Or you could directly manage it because this is now a market that we don't want to just be subject to market forces and gas company executives doing what they think is going to be most profitable because we have competing priorities. In fact, you know, their incentives are exactly the opposite. Right now, because they got burned during COVID, mm -hmm. they don't want to invest in producing more. So it's not a problem with pipelines and permits and all this other stuff. It's actually the gas companies don't want to produce more right now because they got burned during COVID and they don't want to invest the resources. And of course, over the long term, they will do anything possible to kill what might be, you know, price efficient and sensible renewable solutions to include, you know, the entire array of renewables, uh, including nuclear. So the most elegant solution, you know, sometimes the simplest solution is the best. Like if people are poor, give them money. That's UBI, right? If people are homeless, give them housing. That's kind of what it is with the oil companies. The most elegant solution is just to nationalize and manage it directly. What do you think, Marshall? The thing that's hard for me is I know absolutely nothing about energy policy, so um, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and Crystal cheated, not cheated, but uh, <laughs> took my political consensus take uh, off the table. She preempted. Um, so wait, what I, did I? What did I? You, you're, you're just like, like it's you're, not going to happen. So you're right. You can't say that one. I mean, it's true. It's not going to so, happen. So, so, yeah, so, so it's I'm, still I'm, the answer. I'm quasi left without a take escape route. So I'll just take a different <laughs> tact and basically just say, here's what I'm actually frustrated by. What I'm actually frustrated by is what have we known since basically 2015-2016? Brexit, Trump, COVID, Putin's war in Ukraine, all these different bits. Crazy events are going to happen out of nowhere, and I feel like we are so reactive. Mm -hmm. Yes. So my reluctance around the nationalizing the oil company debate, not knowing anything about the topic, it's not even about the practicality, it's not about like the socialism, like whatever, it's more just we are doing this in response to this short-term event. And I don't know what that fits into what a long-term vision of what American society should look like. So for example, with the supply chain issue, the way I think about it is a good, or supply chains and then housing, I'll do both. So one, supply chains. Sagar, you wanna buy something for your kid for Christmas? It will show up. Mm -hmm. Like that is the society that I wanna live in. With housing, we all agree on this from different perspectives, but like, hey, like if you, have, I don't even say if you have a job, but basically if, if you are a young person, you do not have to think it's crazy that you could get a house someday. Like those are what visions we wanna have. I don't see a similar vision for energy. And if it turns out that a nationalization strategy could further whatever vision that mm -hmm. is, I could have that conversation, but that's just well, what I'm like. Let me tell you what the vision was. Yeah, The vision was the Green New Deal. I mean, the that is not only, um, I don't know what the polling is now because it's been so demonized. Yeah, and they but, messed up the rollout of and it. And they messed up the rollout and they made Excluded it easily, nuclear. easily And it was a grab bag of just every left-wing yeah. idea. But it's not the it, original idea. The concept of the big 
concept of like, this is a national project we're all going to engage in. The concept of we're not going to leave coal miners behind. We're not going to say, learn to code, good luck, right? We're going to have a holistic transformation of our economy that moves us away from what is not only bad for the planet, but is a disaster for our national security. That framework was is actually a good framework. That is what we should be doing. It's just, yeah, the left, you know, failed on some of the specifics. Oh. It gets de- completely demonized by everybody across the board. And so now if you propose anything that even looks like it, you're considered, you know, foolish and ridiculous and absurd yeah. and all the rest. But the reality is, you know, this is, even if you don't give a shit about the planet, I think everybody should be very clear that this is a massive national security issue for us right now. And the fact that we're like, oh, we care about human rights, so we're not going to have Russian oil, we're going to have Saudi oil, is completely, you know, silly and absurd. When I think of a Green New Deal, intuitively, I think probably the same thing that you think, which is like, let's do this gigantic national, nationally mobilizing project where you, I, I love the idea of making the U.S. infrastructure number one in the world and by a mile. Like, I don't right. just want to update it. I don't want to just just want to, you know, improve it a little bit. I want to have the number one infrastructure that's the envy of the world. So I think about that, and I think about transitioning to green and renewable technology, definitely open to nuclear. Uh, I'm not sure if the technology is there yet, but thorium is supposed to be like nuclear, but meltdown oh, yeah. proof. And, so well, there's also little mini reactors now, which are even cooler. See, like, there's a million yeah. things we can which do and should do like- down mm-hmm. that path, but I'm sorry, the progressives screwed it up to the high heavens because it, the bill didn't even end up being what I just described, the bill ended up being, let's just put every single left-wing policy into it and call it the Green New Deal, and it was ripe for attack. Now, I would defend almost, almost every individual piece of the Green New Deal on its own merits, but you can't just put it all together and say, this is the Green New Deal, when the original idea wasn't supposed to be that at all. So I'm actually really frustrated with the Democrats on this, because you had an idea that was a good idea that was polling at like 80-plus-something percent, and then you shot yourself in the foot and made it easy for idiots like Sean Hannity to go, to go out on his show well, every night and, another, just, and destroy it. Let me, let me also throw this into the mix because Gallup just did some polling on um, support for climate change policies. And even I've even seen, you know, even in West Virginia, which is like caricatured as, oh, they just want to stay on coal forever. Like even in West Virginia, that's not at all the case. They want to have jobs. Yeah, sure. But listen, anybody who's family members have worked in a coal mine is not dying for their kids to also work in a coal mine. I can assure you of that. So on, you know, these basic measures, providing tax credits to Americans who install clean energy systems like solar power in their home, 89% favor, providing tax incentives to business to promote their use of wind, solar, nuclear, 75%, setting higher fuel efficiency standards, 71%, establishing strict limits on the release of methane and the production of natural gas, 62%, providing tax credits to individuals who buy electric vehicles, 61%, and spending federal money to increase the number of electric vehicle charging stations in the U.S., 59%. If you pull overall on some of the you know top proposals to move us towards uh, renewable energy and away from fossil fuel, it's very popular, even in states that would be, um, you know, that where they have significant jobs dependent on the current status quo. So this, again, comes down to an issue of corruption and capture of Washington because the politicians are not at all responsive to that sort of polling. What they're ultimately responsible to is, you know, the fossil fuel industry. And that's why it's not just that their incentives are misaligned with what we actually want to see and do energy policy in the short term and the long term. It's that their capture of the political system makes it impossible to move in a better direction. Go ahead, Marshall. A quick um, 
this question for the two of you, super curious for your answer, because there's a point of tension here mm -hmm. between the Green New Deal vi vision point, which is very well taken, and where this started, which was the price of gas is too high. Um, because like, you're right to in the context of this conversation say, let's put aside people who are like, oh, a climate change. But like, that's actually part of the issue, right? And if you talk to people who are in climate policy, scientists, yeah. et cetera, a big issue, once again, right-wing listeners go away for a second, a big issue is actually gas probably should be more expensive because part of the way that we transition to a clean energy future is that we focus away from those sorts of policies. So I'm just curious about the contradiction between Green New Deal's image of a world where we're using just less gas I in think general. the glass, gra gas should be more expensive view is sort of very libertarian. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're going to force yeah, people. Yeah, we'll free market so our way out of we're gonna free yeah, yeah, we're going to force people like through their suffering mm -hmm. to get off of gas and drive less. That's not the only direction that you have to go in. I mean, you know, an, an alternative example, which is very simple and something that Biden has talked about, but of course they haven't really done, is making the price of electric vehicles a lot more affordable. And then, by the way, when you reduce consumption of gas, gas prices go down. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it easier for working class people who are still dependent on, you know, fossil fuel driven vehicles to be able to survive and get to work and do the things that they need to do. Quick so. thing, Chris, what you're really saying is that I am so captured by neoliberalism that That's even yeah. in my attempt <laughs> to like be a lefty climate splainer, I actually was just, I'm like, but the market, Chris, yeah, I, I've imbibed. I'll say this though, that's an important thing and that gets to a real dynamic. Whenever I hear the grassroots Republican uh, response to Green New Deal, it's like they want to make it more expensive for me to drive. That's that's the number one. Right. They want to increase my energy bill, and this is where I or would just some point. like they want to make it so I can't eat meat. Early. Right, <laughs> that's right. the other. Yeah, part. and there are <laughs> legitimate strains of that. I don't want to downplay it. There's like some restaurant, the best restaurant here in New York, which apparently doesn't serve meat anymore. But more, what I'm pointing to is that cost is still king for the majority of consumers. Yes. So this is where you can't let idiocracy get in the way of it. So we're here in New York City. I've talked about this before on the show, but they closed. By Cuomo, at the pressure of environmental activists, closes the Indian Point nuclear power plant, which was supplying a decent amount of power here to the city. And now Con Ed is doing natural gas-fired plants. And oh, by the way, because of the whole Russia thing, it's also more expensive for consumers. So consumers got screwed. And I'm not blaming – look, I, I, do, I will blame the blinders of the environmental activists. But what I'm pointing to is that one of the key points – from this is that through federal government subsidy, let's be honest, we already subsidize these fossil fuel companies dramatically. Oh, yeah. One of the problems that we have right now is that we don't have technology neutral tax credits. So right now, a lot of the tax credits that go for renewable energy go towards solar and wind. I'm not saying solar and wind are bad, but from a capacity perspective, they don't compete at all whenever it comes to nuclear. So let's just make it technology neutral, obviously exclude fossil fuel, make it so that you have to hit a certain carbon threshold, which is below natural gas, and let's see who wins. And these are the types of things where I actually, well, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I think you could probably pass that in some form. Mm. The problem that we have right now is that to Marshall's point, the secret, the dirty secret is that a lot of people, neolib kind of climate people, will basically say, yeah, you have to make it more expensive. So, so like, no, yeah, it's, so, by, it's, by well, the way, this isn't just neolibs. Okay. The, like, Left, even a lot of lefty climate. Right, like, right. Like, th th there's a this behind is a weird closed doors. They're like, no, we need to make gas more expensive for people so that they are forced to buy electric. No, and like, I, I mean, just reject that 100. Well, percent Well, yeah. but my point and yeah. uh, your point as well yeah. in nationalizing it is that you nationalize the industry so that you can do the things that make sense 
with it. And one of the things I would do is make sure gas prices in the interim, until we get on renewable technology, make sure it's cheap and affordable for working people. So now there may be some who disagree with me on that. the most likely to drive, right? Right. Like, so and, there, and there may be- long distances. Which connects to our housing there, yeah, conversation right. too, There may the be people yeah. who disagree with me on that, but I don't, I don't even think it's that many, to be honest. I think most lefties who- Well, let me say also, there is a split, uh, kind of a generational divide in the environmental movement, which mm-hmm. I can't say that I'm deeply steeped in, but I have enough of the understanding of the contours of it, which is, you know, originally the environmentalist movement, when it was Earth Day and all this, it wasn't, climate was one of the things that was just starting to come to the surface as a major issue. And there was more of just a sort of anti-development stance in general. The younger generation, Sunrise and, and the Green New Deal type of folks, well, first of all, they're laser focused on climate as the number one issue over and above all else. And so they're much more into like building, right? So, you know, the opposition of the activists in New York was basically like, we we don't want to build stuff, anything, because we're just generally anti-development. Whereas, in fact, if you're going to transition to a different energy source, you're going to have to build a lot of stuff. You're going to need a whole new infrastructure, to your point, to be able to support that. So there's also this kind of like, ideological and generational divide within the environmental movement. And I think the younger generations have a much better sort of grasp of what would actually be required. And also, by the way, I think I think are better on the issue you're talking about, Marshall, because what I really found appealing about the Green New Deal to start with is the fact that central to it is we are not leaving people behind. You know, in other in the social democracies that people like Kyle and I love to hold up as great examples, they do have a different orientation towards these things where they're not obsessed with the jobs. They're obsessed with the workers. Mm -hmm. The workers are central. And so if an industry you know, is damaging to the country, damaging to the world, they're okay with it going away because their commitment is to the workers and they know they're, they have a safety net and program in, sh- in place to make sure those workers are going to be okay. And I think that's the way we need to think about things more in America rather than holding on to like, oh my God, but if we have single payer, then the, the health insurance ghouls are g- not going to have a job. No, if you have a commitment to the working people and you make sure that they're going to be okay, then you can phase out industries that are damaging to the population overall. Ahead, yeah, let me just say real quick, just to rewind for a second on, on the nuclear point. So I'm, I always viewed myself as relatively agnostic on the issue of uh, nuclear energy. And um, I mean, I guess in modern times, maybe I'm leaning slightly more towards okay. I mean, all the other options seem to be worse, but you have to acknowledge there is sort of a PR problem for nuclear because yeah. when, oh, no. when the, people the think the of nuclear... The only problem is PR, and this is why I get well, pissed no, off No, but it is it. also uh, a real problem. You have... Okay. How many people died in Fukushima? But hold on. You have Three Mile yeah. Island, you yeah. have Fukushima, you have Chernobyl. Three Mile Island didn't kill anybody, by the way. We've heard about Chernobyl in the past few weeks, Kyle. What's going on? Okay, even Chernobyl. Okay, we don't live in the Soviet Union. We don't have RBMK No, no, no. A problem with nuclear, yeah. and this is a widely understood problem yeah. with nuclear, is that one of the big issues with it is political instability and incompetence. And I'm not naive enough to think yeah. that this thing that we're doing right now in the United States is definitely on solid ground and going to last a really long time. I mean, for all we know, this thing could crumble apart within just a couple of decades. So all I'm saying is that's a big asterisk on let's do nuclear power. 
you need to have a, a very high level of competence and you need to have political stability. And right now the world is definitely lacking in political stability. That's not to say that the other things are better because they're not. I hear but it is point. to say there are issues there. I hear your point. Natural gas is still worse. Uh, natural gas also has instability in its markets, releases 50 something percent more carbon. And if you look at this on the industrial scale, more people have died from smog, pollution, other chemical accidents. And uh, look, am I saying no, that it's not scary? Yeah, it's scary. Understood, okay? but I'm saying it's a false yeah. dichotomy that we should sure. be, like thorium, like I said before, if they could get the technology on thorium enough to the point where we could do these thorium facilities, yes. then pff, I'm all Listen, in. Listen, you've persuaded me yeah. on nuclear, but there is also an issue with cost where- It costs they, a lot. Yeah, it's, there have been massive cost overruns. Now, I understand because we talked to lovely, what's her yes, name? Yes, Meredith. Meredith. Meredith Angwin, um, nuclear who grandma. We I know. think made some yes. wonderful, she was yeah. lovely, and she made some great points about how, yeah, because when you're creating a one-off, like if you build just one car, right. it's going to cost millions of dollars. If you're doing this routinely and you have a process and you have economies of scale, then it could be more reasonable from a cost perspective. But that 100%. is also another legitimate nuclear concern. Total, totally legitimate. Yes. Um, I would just say that, yeah, it might be cheaper to buy, uh, build low-capacity power like wind and all that, but then you still have to have natural gas in order to back it up. So right. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. One of the things that people wanted to hear about our premium subscribers was the geopolitical realignment. And I think that in terms of the top line stories that are coming out of it, we've talked on the show about NATO expansion, but I think the more interesting meta point is what does the balance of power in the world look like right now? So previous to this, we would have said, previous to the Russian invasion, Russia, number 11th largest GDP in the world, literally less than Italy, America is moving away from this. The European Union plays a central role in terms of our cultural ties, but let's all be honest, that's not really where America's focus on. It was all China all the time. It, in terms of our discussion right now, it feels very much like it's 1972. Like we're talking, yeah. it's all Russia. It's all NATO. It's all detente or rollback. We have to decide on like how we're going to confront this. And yet at the same time, we have India the largest democracy in the world, not joining with us in terms of their sanctions, yeah. not really joining the Western bloc. We're still focused on NATO expansion. China, in the China lockdown, as we're, we're seeing in real time, massive impact on our economy, on our supply chain in a way that didn't exist at all. So I feel like we're living in this parallel world where our foreign policy media attention and focus is living in one year, and then on the same time, our actual interests are fading away with an almost on autopilot without any of the sort of debate and things that we need in order to avoid a possible conflagration in the future. Go ahead, Mark. I want to I I push back on your frame. Sure. Um, so A, I, I did an episode of Bridge Colby on this. Yep. Um, so, you know, a friend of the show, obviously, and I don't want to claim we can do everything all at once. Well, we can recognize that what happens in one theater affects another theater. So, for example, um, this just happened yesterday, and they're like reporting this is a little inconclusive, so I don't want to overstate, but the, the flagship of Russia's Black Sea fleet mm -hmm. was just at a minimum, it probably wasn't sunk, but at a minimum, it was taken out of the fight. So the fire's been out. Yeah, the uh, fire, but but it's been yeah. it's been it's been effectively taken out of the fight mm. um, by a um, so Neptune missile. By a Neptune, by a Ukrainian built like um, surface to um, you know water missile. Not the technical term, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's why this matters for the China issue. 
this is the definition of something that makes the Chinese, when they're thinking about a Taiwanese invasion that would involve like an amphibious actual mm. aspect, is actually deeply important. Because the number one takeaway from the Ukrainian conflict, now this, and by the way, I am not a, I'm like a moderate interventionist, I need to be very clear. So no, no fly zone, I didn't support the MiGs, no NATO boots on the ground, all those different bits. But China is seeing so much of the past two months and the very clear implication is, wow, like invading another country in the year 2022 is a shit show. Mm -hmm. And there's been very good reporting that this is almost certainly affecting how the Chinese are thinking about this. So I want to agree with you that, and once again, there are people on my side who probably talk this way and they say like, ha ha, all these people say that we're going to pivot to Asia. They're stupid. The future is in Europe. The future is not in Europe, but what happens in, in Europe affects Asia. And that should drive how we think about this. Sure. Like that should, so for example, what debate should we be having right now? From my perspective, the debate should be, hey, if you're in the Taiwanese government right now, how are you getting the equivalent of Neptune missiles to make sure that your country is kept safe so that the Chinese do not invade in the first place and you have actual deterrence? I think that's a good point. Go, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I was yeah. just going to say, I, honestly, if China wants to take Taiwan, it, it, they either do it and just, get away with it or it's a similar situation to what we're seeing now in Ukraine where they're just bogged down in a extended fight that's all but in terms of like what can the US actually do about it well i mean we're learning now with what's happening in Ukraine like when when, when you're talking about Afghanistan when you're talking about Iraq when you're talking about countries that we could basically bully into submission like yeah then we go to war but when it's a kind of like Vladimir Putin has more nukes than we do and so we just we can't do anything except you know arms on the ground or whatever and so i think that that's that's the reality of the situation, in, in my opinion. But to your question about basically unipolar world versus multipolar world, um, I think there's no doubt that it's really the, the unipolar world, the U.S. is the world's sole superpower. That's definitely going away. And what you're seeing now is Russia is reliant on China mm -hmm. uh, in order to right. really oh, just function. Right. Yeah, I mean, we had when, when we put those swift banking sanctions, then they immediately China immediately welcomed them into, you know, whatever their equivalent for banking is. Yep. And um, what you're seeing also with the Belt and Road Initiative is basically China is doing empire through in my it, in my opinion, a more evolved means. That doesn't mean it's good. It just means it's a slightly more evolved version of imperialism because what we do is, you know, we have basically puppet dictators that are in countries that allow then our corporations to exploit the natural resources in those countries. And that was an evolution from like the British way of doing it, which was like they just show up in India and they're like, this is ours now. And so, but what China's doing is a step further. Hey, what if we gave you some material well-being through building out infrastructure in your countries and then you allow us to explo exploit you in return? And so, yeah, I think that if the long-term trajectory, yeah, the sun is setting on the American empire. It's eventually going to be probably, you know, a Chinese empire and then they'll rise and fall too, just like every single empire. Uh, but it is very strange to live in as tumultuous a time as we do right now, because I mean, you're actually seeing a rapid decline of the American empire, in my wait, opinion. Wait, 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 well, wait, but why? Like, if you think about why it, what? like, so let's define, like, once again, like American empire is a, <laughs> we'll have different definitions of that, but like NATO's stronger than ever. Um, they're not going to do shit, though. Well, they're not supposed to do shit. They're and I agree, to, right? No but, no, no, but no, but this is the point, though. Like, the American Empire wasn't in Ukraine in the set beyond like supplying weapons. We're doing that now. You, like NATO as an institution is now safe. Um, and there was serious about whether or not NATO as an institution would sunset. NATO is almost certainly going to expand into Finland and Sweden. Um, the U.S.'s actual perception in Western Europe is the highest it's been in a long, long, long time. If you're a European right now, you are not thinking about what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, as terrible as those things were. You're thinking, wow, I'm glad that there are U.S. troops there. Like our relations with Poland were like 
going like this. Now they're back up like that. So, so you don't think the American empire is in decline? Is that the well, point? Uh, but you're, you, what you call American empire, I, I call like a U.S. world, a U.S. led world order. Blah 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 blah. Like there's a, like we could like quibble with like the specific ways we call it, but like what I would define as the status quo is the U.S. has allied countries who we support militarily fiscally, whatever, like we're going to get even deeper in with Japan. We're deeper in with South Korea. We're deeper in with Europe. Like, I don't, we're even getting but on the other side, they're more united too. Do, would you concede that? That now that, China, that, Russia, Iran, I mean, we could go down a list here. Even India now is sort of wobbling you know, and going India, more. India, India, pursued, not, India pursued nukes in the 80s and 90s. Like we had, we had sanctions. And like I did, a, I did a good up. India is always doing yes, whatever. Non-alignment is here. So, but, I'm okay. sorry. Go well, ahead. I was just going to yeah. say, I think there is a clear hardening of it's it is almost like a new Iron Curtain. And, um, right. you know, so there's a, a few things to say about this. So, first of all, our financial economic warfare against Russia, which it has gone so far that it definitely is that mm -hmm. um, it definitely having an impact on the Russian economy, creating great suffering for the Russian people, no doubt about that. But it also has strengthened those alternative systems and strengthened the motivations for China and even Saudi and other countries to say, we got to make sure that we're never going to be in a position to really be destroyed by American sanctions. So there's that part of it. But I think if we zoom out, oh, one other thing to say about that. It actually reminds me of these sort of like increasingly difficult loyalty tests from Trump, where it's like the more outrageous and obnoxious he is, he's able to see who's really with him. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what Russia has done with China, right? Like they basically have created this test for China of like, all right, are we really, are we really in this together? And Effectively, China has said, we don't love what's going on. We're not going to like directly back you, but basically, yes. Mm -hmm. So that is part of what has created that hardened iron curtain being drawn sense of the world. And then the media censorship and all of that plays into it. Part of why I view American influence and empire as being in decline is because the ideology behind it has basically been exposed as morally bankrupt and wrong. So the McDonald's in every square theory that if we just get, you know, free markets into Russia, then we're all going to be friends and mm -hmm. democracy is going to follow and it's going to peace is going to reign supreme. Well, that was a fucking fantasy. So that ideology has been thoroughly indicted. Then you add on top of that our blatant hypocrisies and own viol routine violations of the supposed international rule of law that we supposedly care about an architect. And you add on top of that, you know, the, the mass populist uprisings that we've seen around the globe that have continued, that have challenged the neoliberal economic status quo, which is part and parcel with this foreign policy worldview. Yeah, the American neoliberal, like shock doctrine and uh, we're going to have democracy around the world and we're going to install it. All of that has been thoroughly dismantled as an ideology. It, so that's just, why I think the American influence and empires. In and even just Trump and Biden getting elected, these people are they're like a symbols of a decaying society yes. to have any situation where Donald Trump wins the presidential election and then Joe Biden, who's half dead, wins the presidential election as a backlash from Trump. That's not a healthy society. That's a society that's in severe decline. Quick response. Mark. Yeah. So the quick response is. A, like Richard Nixon literally like committed severe crimes at Watergate as the Vietnam War ended in defeat. So I don't think we should over 
read into bad leadership at the top here. But what I would just say, Chris, was I actually don't disagree with your, like, yeah. we're dunking on the Thomas meta. Friedman. Let's say his name. Like, we're attacking Thomas yes. Friedman. <laughs> like, when we talk Goes about, like, two saying. countries with the McDonald's have never gone, like, we were wrong, totally wrong. Yeah. But my underlying point is I agree with you, but what I am countering is that dynamic will only make what we call, what you call American empire. U.S. troop presences overseas. U.S., like, funding of militaries, et cetera, et cetera, that is only going to get stronger. Japan is now openly saying, we could see a world where we have American nukes yeah. in our country. Right. That is what I think you would call an example of like American empire. Um, that we now have a world where the polls are saying, good, more American troops. If, if, if Bill Biden called up the president of the Baltic, the presidents of the Baltic countries and said, hey, we'll give you 500,000 troops, they would be dancing in the streets right now. That, that, that is what I mean by American, so correct, because we're debating a couple of things. American influence, yes, down, but that's been on a downward trajectory mm -hmm. since the Cold War ended. See, it's actually interesting because what you're just highlighting is that unipolarism made it so that having to pick the sides and increasing tension was supposed to go down. That was yes. the promise of McDonald's. Now we're actually <laughs> back in a system of a duality and a challenge of world, which increases tension and increases the likelihood of war. I mean, I agree with you, Sweden and Finland are probably going to be in NATO. I think that's fucking crazy and we should not do it. That being said, the current trajectory looks like we almost certainly are, which is going to make it so that the tension does increase. My fear is that we get bogged down in some bullshit war in Europe defending Finland or Swedish mm -hmm. territorial integrity mm -hmm. while the entire world's GDP and future is being led in Asia. And I, I do, do not call think it, that's- like, Honestly, like real talk, like a war that got so big that it involved Finland and Sweden isn't bullshit. No, I disagree with that. I mean, first of all, we didn't go to war in World War II in order to defend Finnish integrity. So what I'm and saying I don't is, what, so I'm saying define bullshit. Like, yeah. What I'm really getting at is like, okay. a war where that war happens is a fucking oh, disaster. I, I agree with you. Yeah. For the, and, and look, and this is where I know I sound callous. I'm really sorry, but the integrity of the Finnish border, which has been invaded by the Russians many times throughout history, is not in the nuclear interest of the United States, which is essentially yeah. what it means in order to admit them to NATO. Same with, frankly, I also believe the Baltic states, but we've already signed that treaty. Yeah. It is what it is. Um, but when I'm talking about Sweden and NATO, once again, which are very much within a traditional Russian sphere of influence, that doesn't mean that they deserve to be invaded. And if they were invaded, I would support doing exactly what we've been doing here with Ukraine. Do they deserve the nuclear guarantee and the nuclear umbrella of the U.S.? Absolutely not. And so what drives me crazy about the current debate is it's like, oh, Sweden wants to be in NATO. So it's just a de facto. Well, hold on a second. That what you want is immaterial. What we want is supposed to be material. Go ahead. Kyle. Okay, but yeah. I mean, the point has to be made, though. Russia should also stop giving Finland and Sweden a reason to want to no, be in NATO. Listen, yeah, of course, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> like, I, I'm with no, you. No, I, I, I'm I agree. not saying and the Russians way, are I agree bad. with you too. Like, I agree with you too. Yeah. I, I, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, am I or anybody I know and love? Are, are we? Am I going to go fight and die or risk nuclear war over fucking Kiev? or some city in right. Finland or Sweden? The answer is hell no. There's no way. But the, I, you know, I just feel like the other point had to be made too. The no, no, last, no. The you're last not thing, wrong. The last That's thing important. I wanna say about this, cause I think it's clarifying about what we are doing in Ukraine and why I said this is hardening. It's a new iron curtain. It is a new sort of cold war. It's a dividing of the world. It's, it is, you know, 
sort of bolstering American empire in the ways you're talking about, Marshall, while the ideology itself is thoroughly discredited. And it certainly is giving reason for the other side of that uh, multipolar world to strengthen as well. Ron Klain got asked about, um, hey, what about what are you doing to create an exit ramp for Putin? And Klain being a top White House advisor, I think he's more or less running chief the staff, show. Yeah. Chief of staff. Twitter he says, chief. yeah, <laughs> he said he gives progressives pats on the head and they fall in yeah. line. That's what he does. Um, he says, I don't want an exit ramp for Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I that's don't psycho. think that's our concern. That's psycho. Our concern is punishing the Russian aggression. They're not distinguishing between Putin and the Russian people, by the way, and defending the rights of the Ukrainians to have the kind of future they deserve. And that's what our military support is enabling. So he is straight on saying we, we don't want peace we don't want peace right our goal is not peace our goal is to make putin pay a price i don't want an exit ramp our concern is punishing russia so i mean they're saying it right out like and and we've had reports of this before biden i think let the truth slip when he said we cannot have vladimir putin in power he cannot remain in power we already had aides who were leaking basically the only game here is effectively regime change they aren't in this to help Ukrainians secure a peace, which is what I want to see and I think everybody here wants to see. They are effectively forcing that division, that new Iron Curtain and some sort of Cold War competition. And so I think that's what, you know, that's what their goals ultimately are. We are rolling the dice. Some people say this is hyperbolic. I assure you it is not hyperbolic. We are playing with fire and nuclear weapons are on the table. And I think people need to understand that and realize that. And so the instability that's created by now the fact that there's a multipolar world, the downfall of having the unipolar world was, of course, like we wantonly violate international law on a Tuesday before breakfast. You know what I mean? Like we can invade 73 percent of the world's dictatorships are backed by the United States of America. Look at what we did in the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the downsides of, of you know, the unipolar world with the chief hypocrite leading it. But the downside of the multipolar world is like potential World War Three and the nukes in the air and endless instability and armament out the wazoo on both sides. Well, I, mean, I just yeah, said the word wazoo. because we only have nine minutes left. Yeah, yeah. so final, final word that I would say is, look, I think the exit ramp is already getting taken. Um, the only thing that made Putin pull back his ambitions to now just focusing on the East and the Donbass and those places were the fact that he was basically militarily defeated in front of Kiev, which happened because the West supported Ukraine. So I would say that I think the current policy is working. And I think the only way you get peace, quote unquote, is Putin is convinced that he doesn't achieve the political military objectives that he wanted to have. He thought he could take Kiev. He can't take Kiev. He's pulled back. That part of the conflict has de-escalated. It's going to settle into a 10-year horror horrible, horrible war, but we had that before. We had that for eight years after 2014. That didn't prompt Western intervention. I think we are moving the right direction. And I just think at this point, the ball is in Putin's court. And the way that you get him to peace is Ukrainian victory on the battlefield in specific situations like the battle around Kiev. I don't, I think we have gone so far that there is no, there is no political will or desire even to ever lessen the sanctions that we've imposed on them, even if they were to come to some sort of negotiated settlement. That's and opinion. so now the reality of the world is you've got another pariah state. You've got another, you know, baddie country that we are, you know, any time that we can get a chance at regime change in there, we're going to be messing around, maybe not directly on the ground. And to me, that does not help to preserve world peace or stability. So it's a it's a 
in my view, a very dangerous landscape. All right. We got eight minutes, All right. Crystal. Last so let's one. talk about okay. labor. Because we have to talk about labor <laughs> or else I'm going to melt down. All yeah. right. Um, we are here in New York City. And as you guys know, um, Staten Island has just done something incredibly historic, which is to vote for the first ever Amazon union in American history, led by Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer. They have another election coming up here in nine days, okay. I believe. Um, which is another building on Staten Island. Um, and frankly, I think it's going to be as as impossible as the first victory was. I think this one may be even harder. First of all, um, you know, Chris and Derek both came from the other building, so they had really deep, like, local networks there. But most importantly, Amazon is now going over the top with uh, union busting. I think they were caught a little bit sleeping, just like many people they underestimated, Chris Malls and his team. They are not going to make that mistake again. And so Vice has um, some reporting from within that facility saying Amazon is forcing workers to remove union banners. They're confiscating union lit. They got audio of Amazon reps disciplining a lead organizer. So the union busting tactics there are ramping up. And at the same time, Starbucks, Howard Schultz, Mm-hmm. is losing his mind about the union victories that are unfolding in an unprecedented way there as well. I mean, the Starbucks union movement has spread like wildfire. Their last four victories, union victories, were unanimous. Not one vo- worker voted against the union. And that's at the same time that they have massively escalated their tactics. So they fired the old CEO because he failed to stop the unions. They fired their union-busting general counsel. They brought back founder Howard Schultz. He immediately announces, I'm so freaked out about this, I'm not even going to do stock buybacks anymore, um, which is a big move. He starts giving speeches talking about the union's assault on corporate America. They start, uh, they ramp up firing of organizers. There's, look, these companies always do union-busting. The number of NLRB violations that Starbucks has been accused of, a supposedly progressive company, is truly extraordinary. But the thing that's really interesting is some of these tactics, not only do they not seem to be working, they kind of seem to be backfiring. I mean, again, since Schultz is back and they've done all this stuff, not just victories, unanimous victories, and more and more Starbucks continuing to file for union elections. So, um, Marshall, I'm actually curious for your perspective, because I haven't heard from you on this issue, do you think that this is a flash in the pan or do you think that this truly presages a new era of labor politics? Yeah, it's interesting. You haven't heard from me on this because I know nothing about the subject, but as a consumer <laughs> of Amazon and reluctantly Starbucks, which isn't that great anymore, um, I will give my opinion. So I think the two situations are different. Yeah. Um, so I see a world where as a category, Amazon is almost certainly able to make a lot of um, union anti-union victories. I, I think that I think that they can. I don't even like, once again like I don't know what the word union. I'm not in a bad way. I don't know what union busting means in the year 2022. But like I think there's a word where Amazon could, in good faith, convince people not to do it. In Starbucks, I don't have any understanding of how, given how social media driven it is, given frankly the clientele. Because I, th- I what I would actually probably bet is that people who go into Starbucks probably like it. But no, that we, Starbucks we, would be would be, would be yes. unionized. Yeah. So yeah. like, but but in Amazon's case. And this is what's toxic about Amazon. People just want their two day thing, even if it means people are like pissing in water bottles. But in, yeah. so, so like I don't so well. It's more invisible. Yeah, the it's, labor it's, it's at invisible. Amazon is more invisible. Um, so I don't know what I don't know what Starbucks does 
because this is like, I, don't, I say social contagion, not disparagingly. Yeah. But like, once you see a picture of a, of a Starbucks unionizing, I do not see what possible argument Starbucks could make to other Starbuckses around the country that would dissuade just seeing that image. It's just, we're going to fire you, but well, you know, that's not going to work, right? Here's yeah. the other thing, Kyle, that I've been thinking a lot about is like a lot of the Starbucks workers in particular, but also a good number, the Amazon workers are also young and many of them were also Bernie people. Like part of why you have this movement right now is because of the consciousness that the Bernie campaign helped to build. They interviewed some of the first Starbucks or union organizers and they were like, I learned how to organize on Bernie Sanders' campaign. So not only do you have a labor landscape that has been dramatically transformed by COVID and where it became really clear to people that my boss will literally let me die and not give a shit if they think that they can make more profit. So you have that. You have the fact that there are a lot of jobs available, but they're shitty low-wage jobs. So people are saying, I'm I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay here and actually make this a good job because that's the thing that matters to me. But then you also have a generation that is historically favorably inclined towards unions and who have received a kind of labor education that we have never given people in through the education system by their proximity and awareness of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably part of it. Uh, I think the biggest part of it is just necessity because, you know, we're living in an era where, I mean, the government really doesn't do much of anything to help people anymore. You know, like whatever remnants of the New Deal and the war on poverty are there, just like slowly eroded over time. We've been in this monstrous neoliberal era for so long now. And I think people looked around, they realized there's no Calvary that's coming to save us. Like we got to save ourselves. And so one of the ways you do that is you look to your co-workers, you hold hands in solidarity and say, let's try to form a union. Let's try to get better wages and better benefits and do this in a more direct way. If nobody's coming to save us, we need to save ourselves. So I think it's probably necessity is driving a lot of it. And, you know, that's why I hope that you get victories across the board. I know you told me before this that, what was it, the last four um, Starbucks union yeah, elections? Unanimous. It was unanimous? The yeah. whole, like, and what is it, 20 states now? 29. 29 states. 29 wow. states. Right. The Amazon labor union has now received inquiries from more than 200 buildings. Wow. And just for to keep in mind the scale, as I mean, I, both of these movements are extremely exciting and transformational. I think because they are really recognizable brands that the upper middle class uses like literally every day, that's part of why these things are so incredibly powerful. Um, but you've had 200 plus buildings across the country reach out to Amazon Labor Union about organizing. Now, they're not going to win all of those, but a single building in Staten Island, that's 8,000 workers. Right. Mm -hmm. So the entirety of the Starbucks movement thus far, the I think it's 19 stores maybe that they've organized thus far, doesn't come close in numbers, although it comes, it has a lot of cultural cachet to what you could ultimately do at Amazon. On the other hand, Sagar, like, the laws are still extraordinarily rigged against them. It's still a very difficult climate. The things that bosses can do to try to threaten and persuade you and lie to you basically um, about the union still makes it very, very hard. So I think while this thing is very nascent and very exciting, it's far from a foregone conclusion that ultimately you're going to have this wave continue. Yeah, that it's it's not a foregone conclusion. I would I would just look at what I find most fascinating is that no matter what, there is still some change being sparked here. Yeah. So Amazon, obviously, trying to raise their wage. 
they're trying to be like, and this is what Marshall said, and I think it's what most likely they'll do. They'll be like, okay, fine, we'll go to $21 an hour. We'll go to this, as long as you don't unionize, as long as you do what we say. I'm not saying it's a good situation. Money to throw at uh, But they have a, literally hundreds of billions in order to throw at the problem. Starbucks is also, as we pointed to, they took the extraordinary step of saying, we're not going to do star- stock buybacks anymore. We are now going to invest our profit in our people. That's a direct response to right. the unionization. Well, and so, they went further now and said, we're going to give benefits, but only to the non-union right, workers, right, which right. is- Which I don't know how that's legal. Possibly illegal, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how that's and legal. that's up to the NLRB. But yeah. I mean, and that is where law also matters a lot. So at the, at the very least, we're in a huge sea change for the labor movement um, and for worker politics in general with the great resignation, with so much of bargaining power, which is dramatically blue collar. And I think that's on balance an important thing. That's why I do think we're entering a new era. It's not going to look the same as 1910 or, you know, in the, the, the fires and the strikes, but it will be very interesting. It will be driven by the internet. And we're going to have to find some sort of new consensus. So unfortunately, that's time because I know you guys also have to get out of here. Thank you all, uh, everybody who, the tens of thousands of you who watched uh, for some of the fun super chats did and the donations. Did we beat CNN Plus? I, we did beat <laughs> CNN Plus. Within yes. about, uh, for our producer, I think yes. we beat CNN Plus within about two seconds of going live. So Incredible. shout out to you, Chris <laughs> Wallace. I hope you enjoy interviewing James Cameron. Uh, thank you, everybody, so much for watching. This was a fun uh, experience, new format. Thanks to all premium subscribers, yeah. especially you guys programmed an amazing show. And I by had a the lot way, of fun. this was fun. It was fun. And yeah. by the way, if y'all didn't like the topics and you're not premium subscribers, yeah, there you go. Listen, yeah. become a premium That's sub. Daylight like savings time, time was on the table. Oh, Day- I forgot to put it in. Oh, That's actually my time in. debate. Oh, you forgot. Yeah, to put I it forgot. On. Oh, okay. I forgot to put it in. I thought That's they overlooked that. that. No, That's my fault. But they uh, definitely would have voted for that. They would have overlooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's be real here. They went for all the deepest topics. They did go for all the deepest. They went for the deepest stuff, and that's why we love them so much. Shout out. To Alex um, with W2F Media for helping us put this live stream on. If you guys are ever in New York and you need similar services, it's a great spot. I really love the studio. They shoot brilliant idiots here, by the way. Yeah, brilliant idiots. Great show. Andrew Schultz. Andrew Schultz. So shout out to Andrew Schultz as well. And it's been really fun coming to you live from New York. We will see you guys later. Love y'all. Show on Monday. See you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. 
They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.